Father, as we have moved into the new year, we're thankful, Father, that you are faithful whatever year it might be, that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. You're totally immutable, and it is through you that we derive the strength to live each day, the hope that keeps us going in a world that seems to be filled with chaos and violence. Lord, we trust that you will be our strength, our shield, our high tower, our buckler, even as you have promised so many times in your word. We trust you to bless us this day, to give us understanding of your word. This is your communication from your heart to our heart. And I pray, Father, that our hearts will be attentive to what you are saying to us. Bless the word as it is proclaimed today, uh, not only here, but in every class this morning and in the services. And throughout the city of Reading, we pray there will be a mighty move of God in this city and this land in this year. In Jesus' name, amen. I was reminded this past week, and you probably were too if you saw the article in the newspaper, that one-third of all the nations in the world are in conflict right now. One-third of all the nations in the world are involved in war out of nearly 200 nations. So it's, it's a violent time. Wars and rumors of wars, we're told, in the end times. Certainly that's got to be part of it. If you'll turn to the 10th chapter of the book of Judges, Judges chapter 10. We've made it nearly halfway through the book of Judges, but we have some more interesting people to look at yet. I'd like to read the first five verses to begin with this morning. Judges 10, beginning at verse 1. Now, after Abimelech died, Tola, the son of Puah, the son of Dodo, a man of Issachar, arose to save Israel. And he lived in Shamir, in the hill country of Ephraim. And he judged Israel 23 years. Then he died and was buried in Shamir. And after him, Jair the Gileadite arose and judged Israel 22 years. And he had 30 sons who rode on 30 donkeys. And they had 30 cities in the land of Gilead that are called Havoth Jair to this day. And Jair died and was buried in Camon. Well, I hope you were inspired by that. <laughs> One of the interesting things we discover about Scripture is that in many instances it is intimately detailed and in other times there is little detail about events and about individuals. These two judges that are referred to in these five verses were the sixth and seventh judges in the order through the book of Judges. Of the twelve judges, they are number six and number seven. And we know virtually nothing about these individuals except what little information we find in this particular passage. There are three points, for example, that I'd like to emphasize concerning this man, Tola, whose name is thought to have been translated meaning crimson. First of all, we're told that he is from the tribe of Issachar. Issachar was centered up in the north in the Jezreel Valley. But what we discover in, in this passage was that he was not living in the Jezreel Valley. He was living in the hill country of Ephraim, which means he was not living in his tribal land. He was living further to the south. What that seems to imply is that he was judged not just of Issachar, but of some other tribes also. 
which makes his judgeship a little larger than just one little area, possibly including all of northern Israel. Let me reemphasize uh, a point that I made in the past, and that is these judgeships may well overlap. You can't take all the judges and add their periods of judging one to the other sequentially. There seems to be an overlapping period. Sometimes there was a judge in one part of Israel and simultaneously a judge in another part of Israel. And that, that kind of telescopes the time frame down a little bit. We're going to see as we move through the 10th and 11th chapters that a specific time frame is given, the time frame of 300 years, indicating from the time of the conquest to that moment was three centuries of time. What we discover about this man, secondly, is it says in this passage that he saved Israel, that he delivered Israel. But you also discover in this passage that, that, that no enemy is mentioned. It doesn't say that there was anybody attacking or oppressing Israel at this particular time. Uh, therefore, what is this saving? Well, the logic of it, or the most likely saving, is from the chaos that arose with the whole Abimelech episode. If you remember going back to the ninth chapter, Abimelech, the son of Gideon, who tried to usurp power there and was an evil man, and the fighting and, and the uh, internal warfare which occurred as a result, it's very probable that this man's goal was to kind of set things back in order again, get things on an even keel. Abimelech was a pseudo-shofat, a, a false one. He was not one, even though sometimes if you read through your Bible and, and if they have headings at the top, they might say that uh, he was, you know, the uh, sixth shofat. But that is not true. He is not a deliverer. He was a usurper. And so this man comes along to try to restore order. It's possible that his goal was also to bring back the true worship of Yahweh which would, of course, be saving or delivering Israel in truth. It's possible that he saved Israel from a potential enemy. One of the things we're going to discover as we move along through this study is that sometimes we ask why God hasn't done something, and we don't realize how much God has already done, how much worse things could really be than they are. Thirdly, we discover in this passage that he judged Israel for 23 years. We're told also that he was the son of Pua and the grandson of Dodo. That certainly meant something to Israel. Ah, son of Pua, grandson of Dodo. But it doesn't enlighten us very much. One of the reasons is that Pua and Dodo are neither uncommon names because you'll discover that there are two more of each referred to in Scripture. And in one case, it's a woman who is named Pua. What is interesting is that the name Pua means here. And so probably the implication is one who is here. Whatever all that meant. Maybe it's like, son, I'm here, you know, and I'm, aren't you glad for that? Dodo means his beloved. It doesn't mean what we might normally think it is. You know, a little bird that runs around and can't fly. No. It means his beloved. And obviously, because the Israelites were very keen on the, you know, the heritage of the families, this was important to them. But to us, uh, they're just very strange names. I haven't found too many people yet, at least, 
who have considered those possible names for their children. Maybe later, once they're a little older, we might, but <laughs> probably not at birth. After the death of Tola, we have in this passage a new Shofat who is raised up, whose name is Jer, and he's called a Gileadite, meaning that he came from Gilead, which is the land directly east of the Jordan River, between the Jordan River and the Syrian desert. We're told in this passage that he served as judge for 22 years. Now, it is very possible that the 23 for Tola and the 22 for Jer should be considered simultaneous or nearly so because they serve in different areas. The plateau of Gilead was a region that was to some degree isolated from Israel by the Jordan River by the fact that you have 10 tribes living or actually nine and a half tribes living to the west of the Jordan and two and a half tribes living to the east of the Jordan. And even though they're all part of the family of God, you remember at one time the Israelites built a, a, an altar at the Jordan so that the ones east claimed that the reason for that was that the ones west wouldn't forget that they are all one nation and one people. But it's strange how borders do tend to divide over time. This particular individual probably, therefore, was serving as Shofat over the tribes of Gad and Reuben, possibly part of Manasseh, the further northern branch up opposite the Sea of Galilee. What this passage does seem to indicate about him is that he may have been a nobleman because we're told in this passage that he had 30 sons who rode on 30 donkeys. Well, again, obviously, you don't have 30 sons probably if, you only, if you're monogamous. You probably have multiple wives, which was something noblemen frequently did. Plus the fact that riding on a donkey was symbolic of some type of authority. You know, today we think of a donkey as a, you know, as, as a lesser being than a horse. But uh, donkeys were considered regal even in those days. Jesus, if you remember, came into Jerusalem riding on the colt of a donkey. And that was a very regal statement on his part. And so this, this was a family of some significance there. And 30 towns apparently were directly under his authority. And maybe he appointed each son to be a governor of a town. We, we don't know, a mayor of a, of a village. But what the passage does tell us is, that this man's ongoing prominence is indicated by the fact that after, at, at the time Judges was written, which was obviously much after the time in which Jer lived, that those towns were still known as Havath Jer, that is, the villages or the towns of Jer. That's how important this particular person was. Now, where Camon, Camon was, where he was buried, is uncertain probably in Gilead, but its exact location is unknown. One of the frustrating things about studying the Bible is that many, many, many of the towns and villages named in Scripture cannot be identified today as to their location because often the Scripture just says they're in a general area, doesn't give a specific location, doesn't give latitude and longitude, which would be really nice. And the problem is digging these places up I mean, we're talking about 3,000 years of time. In 3,000 years of time, a lot happens. 
Uh, those of you who saw our slides that we showed of uh, Turkey and Greece uh, last year, you, you may not remember, but one of the views showed the excavation of the Roman road in Tarsus, where Paul had lived, a road that Paul, Paul certainly had walked on. And that ro road was only excavated three years ago when they were going to build a hotel or something. They were coming down and whoops, they, they ran into this. And the archaeological group says, ah, ah, you're not building that building now. And, and they excavated all of this. And, and there's an overburden of about 15 feet of material sitting on top of this Roman road. Well, Tarsus was still an important city in the Roman Empire less than 2,000 years ago. So if you figure in, in 1,500 years, you can build up 15 feet of detritus on top of a, of a road. You can imagine where the villages have gone uh, in Israel after 3,000 years of time. Those who study this, of course, have, through archaeology, been able to identify some locations. And other identifications have been because common not nor, um, present names of some villages actually carry a little part of the old name uh, to them. And from that, they sometimes extrapolate that this must have been that village. But this village and, and many of the others that we come across, we just know the general area. We do not know the exact area. With the death of Jer and Tola, spiritual decay sets in again in Israel. The leader, the shofat, the judge, the, the, by the way, Jer's name means he, that is Yahweh, enlightens. What, what this demonstrates is that a people, a nation, have a tendency to drift from their roots without a God-given leader without someone who keeps their feet to the fire, so to speak. People have a tendency to drift away from what they know is true and what is important. This happens over and over again down through time. And so God has to keep raising up judges to keep his people coming back to commitment to him. As we begin the 10th chapter, we read some rather tragic things. Uh, I mean, continue in the 10th chapter, beginning at verse 6. Let's read the next uh, three or four verses here. Then the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. Serve the Baals and the Ashtaroth, the gods of Aram, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the sons of Ammon, the gods of the Philistines. Thus they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. And the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he sold them into the hands of the Philistines and into the hands of the sons of Ammon. And they afflicted and crushed the sons of Israel that year. For 18 years they afflicted all the sons of Israel who were beyond the Jordan in Gilead in the land of the Amorites. And the sons of Ammon crossed the Jordan to fight also against Judah, Benjamin, and the house of Ephraim, so that Israel was greatly distressed. The biggest problem or the biggest source of trouble that you and I face in life is not the weather, it is not finances, it's interpersonal relationships, it's other human beings. And so it is for Israel. The problem is not, oh, the weather was bad and the crops failed. Uh, the problem was not that there was inflation and the economy went sour. The problem was they chased after vile gods and enemy oppressors came into the land. You know, we have read over and over again so far through the book of Judges 
about Israel's return to apostasy every time a judge dies. We think, oh my, the pendulum just goes cling, 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 back and forth. But as we read this, I think we, we, we probably, as we read the previous passage, we could hardly believe Israel could do any worse than they have done before. <laughs> but what do we discover in this passage? We discover that Israel didn't just dabble in paganism. They jumped in with both feet and sunk clear to their chins, or to their noses, if you will. They didn't just turn to Baal and Ashtart as they had done before. Now they decide they've got to worship all the gods they can find, all the gods of the neighboring people. And so as you read down through this passage, we discover they start worshiping the gods of Aram, which is Syria. They start worshiping the gods of Sidon, which are the Phoenicians. And, and they worship the gods of Moab and Ammon and the Philistines. I mean, everybody who had a border against Israel, they worshiped their god. And they probably worshipped other gods if they could have sent messengers over to discover more about them. Oh, tell us about your god, too. We're just collecting them all here, you know. We just want to hedge all our bets, and we're going to worship everybody. I mean, we're looking at a veritable demonic smorgasbord, if you will. They're practicing tolerance. Tolerance, yes. Right. We don't want to be bigoted. So let's do like the ancient Athenians did. We worship everybody and we even build an altar to the god we leave out. Well, obviously, with all of these pagan gods, there was no room for Yahweh. Why was there no room for Yahweh? Because Yahweh tends to be a very exclusive and bigoted god, as you know. In spite of their rebellion, their rejection, the fact that they jumped into the muck up to their noses, God still loved Israel. Aren't you glad God is God? That you're not God and I'm not God. <laughs> well, if we were, there wouldn't be any story. It would have been over. As soon as Adam and Eve did their thing, it had been over. We'll find a new planet somewhere. We'll create some intelligent dolphin or, you know, something that might not reject God. They were still God's chosen people. And God still intended to bring the Messiah through these people, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Because God had made an inviolate promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God keeps his word. This truth saved them from the wrath of God. Because if you turn back to the first chapter of Romans, and we've looked at it before, the scripture tells us that when people go through this particular route that they are going through, God gives them up to their lusts and their perversions and their sin and their depravity and turns them over to it. But God does not turn Israel over to their lusts and their depravity. Rather, he manifests their, his love for them by becoming angry at their sin. And the anger does not result in the rejection of Israel, but in the discipline of Israel. We all know Hebrews 12, 6 well, do we not? For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son, every person whom he receives. That doesn't mean if we walk into the presence of God as his children, we ought to watch out because God's going to start lashing us. The point is God loves us so much that he's going to imply discipline in our lives to keep us on the straight and narrow. Now, two of the peoples whose gods Israel had chosen to worship became their persecutors. 
Philistines from the west and the Ammonites from the east. They were, they were caught in a vice of oppression. And what we have here as a result is the story of two Shofat, Shofatim. We have the story of Jephthah and we have the story of Samson. And each one deals with one of these two oppressors. The Ammonites, we're told in this passage, even crossed the Jordan River to attack Israel in the homeland, creating havoc, we're told, in the hill country of Judah and the hill country of Ephraim. Now, what we discover from this is that the apostasy in Israel must have been more general than the apostasy had been during the lives of the first seven judges because this is the very first time in the book of Judges where we're told that oppression comes to the tribe of Judah. Now, I'm not going to say that Judah was the, you know, a paragon of virtue through all these 300 years, but Judah apparently did not move as far away from God as many of at least the northern tribes did because they were, at, at least as far as description in Scripture is concerned, were not subjected to the oppression that the many other tribes were faced with up to this moment. Now, what kind of oppression are we looking at here? Well, we don't know the exact details, but the Bible says, this passage tells us, that the oppression was very severe because it says that they were afflicted, and the Hebrew word there means shattered. Have you ever been shattered? And it tells us that they were crushed. To be shattered and crushed. I mean, this is what you do when you're, when you're processing ore to make, uh, you know, to produ produce a metal. You, you break the rock and then you crush it. And any of you who've looked into the gold mining that occurred in California and you've seen the old stamps and how they operated where 90 times a second this huge metal rod with weight on the end went up and down, up and down, up and down, crushing the rock into just pulverizing it, you know, to get the gold out of it. And, and that's what's happening. Israel is literally being pulverized here by these enemies, totally beaten down by the Amorites and the Philistines. And they were unable to resist, unable to resist. It, it's, it's just a, a sad thought when you realize that they had no basis for resistance. They had no hope. They were worshiping all these gods, and these were the peoples whose gods they were worshiping that were attacking them. Now, if people truly lived the life of God and walked in His ways, there would be no such thing as warfare. Even though you hear about Christian nation attacking Christian nation, that is not Christian. And God has nothing, you know, nothing to do with it in the sense that each one is fighting on behalf of God. Truly, they're not. There are other things involved, like the whole North Ireland thing. Religion is just the excuse. The reality is hatred that goes back in time to the English and, and to others that uh, involved themselves in the politics of that area. Who were the Ammonites? Well, the Ammonites were the descendants of Ben-Ami. Ben-Ami. The word Ben-Ami means son of my people. But who was Ben-Ami? Well, if you go back into Genesis, you discover, you remember the story Lot was down in Sodom and the angel came and said, Lot, get your wife and your family out of here because I'm going to destroy the place. 
And finally they did, but Lot's wife foolishly looked back and she was destroyed. And so they were living, Lot was living with his two daughters. The two sons-in-law wouldn't come. They said, you guys are crazy. We're staying here. And as a result, they became uh, pulverized by whatever God did to Sodom there. And you remember the two daughters were feeling like, you know, we have no husbands. We're living in caves. Chances of getting a husband are pretty unlikely. Um, our father's our father's line is going to die out, so we better do something about it. And so you have that tragic story of the two daughters getting their father drunk and then having sex with their father, incestuous sex. And from that are born two sons. To the older daughter, Moab is born, and to the younger daughter, Ben-Emi, the father of the Ammonites. Two of the greatest oppressors of Israel were born out of this hideous, incestuous relationship. That is, of course, doesn't give excuse for the later Moabites and Ammonites being the enemy of Israel. They couldn't help their origin, but they continued to walk in the ways of evil gods. These people were partially nomadic and partially sedentary. They lived clear over on the eastern edge of the Gilead Plateau up against the Syrian desert. And so it was a, a people who Actually, what's going to, what we're going to find as we move through this story is they are, um, what should the term I use here be? Um, they're going to try to take advantage of a situation for their benefit and to claim something that never was their due or their right. In David's time, the Ammonites still existed. Their capital was Rabbah Ammon. Today, the city still exists. It is called Amman, and it is the capital of the kingdom of Jordan. It is the same city, the ancient city of the Ammonites. The Philistines are a totally different people, absolutely unrelated to Israel. The Philistines were not even a Semitic people, which all these other people we're talking about were Semitic. The Phoenicians were Semitic, the Arameans, the Syrians were Semitic, the Edomites, the Moabites. All these people are Semitic, but not the Philistines. The Philistines were invaders from the outside. They came from Asia Minor back in the second millennium before Christ and they attempted to invade Egypt and the Egyptians repulsed them and they rebounded and ended up on the coast of Israel, Canaan, where the Gaza Strip is today. That's part of what used to be the Philistine area. In fact, Gaza commemorates the Philistines because Gaza was one of the five great Philistine cities and the name is still used today for that piece of land. The Philistines are also commemorated every time you use the word Palestine because Palestine comes from Philistine and Palestine is the name the Romans gave to the land to eradicate the knowledge of the Jews from the land and to return it to its pagan origins because the Romans of course were a pagan people. And so the Philistines were an, a, a, a non-Semitic, they were an Indo-European people related probably to the Lydians or the Frisians, other Indo-European peoples who had lived up in Asia Minor from one time to another. And they were an iron-using people, they were a pagan people, as were the Ammonites. So this is not a cooperation. Philistines and Ammonites are not cooperating as if they're related to each other. They are driven by the same vile spirits, but their gods are different. Their languages are different. Their culture is different. But Israel is caught in between these two for 18 years. These people did as they willed with Israel. Raped, pillaged, 
burned, murdered, extorted, plundered, everything you can think of, they did to Israel. Every indignity they could put upon Israel, they put upon Israel. Why did God allow this humiliation? These are His people. Well, for the same reason we've talked about before, that Israel might learn that whatsoever they sow, they will reap. And to remember that God is not mocked. I'm reminded of the fool who stands in the corner and says, I'm going to prove there is no God. I'm going to stand here in the corner and I'm going to challenge God and I'm going to call him every name in the book and, and, and demand that if he's true, he strike me with lightning right here on the retreat corner. God doesn't respond. God may be momentarily mocked, but God is not mocked in the long run. And so it would be for Israel. These are God's people, and yet they're living in the midst of horrible tragedy, deprivation, degradation. Every vile thing happens to them that could happen to anybody. And yet, Yahweh is their God. Let me read on in, in the chapter. We won't be able to develop it, but let's read on and see what it says here. Verse 10, Then the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, <laughs> And this is the way to start a repentant prayer. We have sinned against thee, for indeed we have forsaken our God and served the Baals. To the point, cut to the chase, this is the way it is. We have sinned, and this is how we have sinned. And the Lord said to the sons of Israel, Did I not deliver you from the Egyptians and the Amorites and the sons of Ammon and the Philistines, also, when the Sidonians, the, Ma the Amalekites, and the Maonites oppressed you, you cried out to me, and I delivered you from their hands. Yet you have forsaken me, served other gods. Therefore, I will deliver you no more. Go and cry out to the gods which you have chosen. Let them deliver you in your distress. And the sons of Israel said to the Lord, in their minds, they prefaced it by, we've already done that. It didn't work. We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord, and he could bear the misery of Israel no longer. One of the important things to bear in mind as you read a passage like that is to remember that God is immutable. That does not alter. Therefore, when you read a passage, it's not like God said, I'm through with you, I'm done, it's all over, fini. And then they beg him and he says, oh, okay, let's do it once more, you know. No. <laughs> when God said it's all over, he was saying to them, you had better be genuine in your repentance if you expect any help from me. That drove them to their knees and drove them to, to the uttermost, to the place where they would say, God, if you will save us, you can do anything you want to us. And they meant it. And God heard. God is a God of mercy. Above all, he is merciful. And that is why he rescues people from the most horrendous situations. That's why I believe that he could have saved an Adolf Hitler. He could have saved a Joseph Stalin. Now, their hearts never turned. But even men of such vile natures could have been transformed. Because even though the Apostle Paul did it on a much smaller scale, it was just as vile. It tells us that he was breathing hatred 
as he went towards Damascus to catch Christians and imprison them and kill them. I mean, the hatred in his heart was no greater than the hatred of, of Adolf Hitler, or no less. And yet God rescued and saved and transformed Paul. So the mercy of God just drips out of this book of Judges and, of course, through the whole Bible. I think we will develop this passage next week and look further into the 10th chapter of the book of Judges.